Well, it is always a tremendous joy and an honor for me to proclaim the Word of God, certainly on Easter Sunday. And uh, I almost blew up my voice singing just now, so <laughs> pray for me as I continue. No, what a joy it is to sing praises to God. Thank you, Ben and Elijah, for leading us in song. Well, this morning I want to begin by considering a question, uh, an important question, really. What does it take for a person to believe in Jesus Christ? I remember having a conversation with a young man in his 20s who, after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, he confessed to me at the end of it, he says, well, I'm just not sure. And I kind of looked at him and he says, maybe something bad's going to have to happen before I believe. I, I really don't know, he said. In essence, what he was telling me was that things were going too well in his life. He was just having too much fun. He didn't want to turn his life over to Jesus now. Maybe if things don't go so well anymore, maybe then I'll, I'll believe. That's where many people are, even today. Sometimes it's a health scare or a catastrophe or a pandemic or whatever it may be. And they'll show an interest in God and then oftentimes, sadly, when that crisis is over, they revert back to their old way of living. I talked to another young man, same situation, I shared the gospel with him and he said this to me, He said, well, if if God were real, then why doesn't he show himself to me? I mean, he wants me to believe after all, so why don't he just show himself to me to prove that he's real and then I'll believe? That's really the sentiment, isn't it? Prove to me, God, prove to me that you're real and maybe I'll believe. People think that God would just perform some kind of an obvious or undeniable sign that everybody in the world would believe them. But the problem is is that that's already happened. That's already taken place. God himself came to earth and dwelled a human body, walked around on this planet for 33 years, preached and taught at a very public ministry. Everybody in Jerusalem knew who he was in Israel. Everybody's from the surrounding regions. Everybody came and they heard him. He performed countless miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He commanded people to turn from their sins and believe in him. And then what happened? The people rose up against him. They turned him over to the Romans. And the Romans had him promptly executed. And I was even talking to my children this week. We were talking about proofs of Jesus and how do we know Jesus is real. And we really talked about the fact that even even secular scholars and secular historians, non-believers, acknowledge that a man named Jesus, a rabbi from Israel really did live and walk on this earth and teach, and even die on the cross. They'll all concede that. They won't concede the resurrection. But they all concede that Jesus was really here. And so Jesus did give his life on the cross, and he died. Yet according to Acts 1.15, within two months of his departure, he only had 120 followers in Jerusalem. The crowds that had come for all the free meals and the miracles, they were all gone. So what would it take for them to believe? Well, one thing is for certain, it's not what you might think. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to ask the Lord to teach us. And so, turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 12 in your copy of Scripture. In the New Testament, in your pew Bible, it's page 10. Toward the back of your book there, page 10. 
Now at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been teaching the crowds. He's in a a very public ministry. He's teaching all the crowds around him. And now he begins to experience, really, a new level, a new phase of his ministry. He's experiencing opposition from the religious leaders in Israel. Not only has he been teaching, he's also been healing, as we made note. In chapter 12, verse 13, we see him heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, the day of rest the day that they are commanded to stop everything and rest. And far from rejoicing, however, in this miracle, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they begin to plot a way that they can destroy Jesus. A little later, Jesus takes mercy on a demon-possessed man who is both blind and mute. And if you were with us, you saw that a couple weeks ago. He miraculously heals this man in front of the crowds, and the crowds are absolutely amazed. They're astonished. They're knocked out of their senses. However, the Pharisees, they've completely hardened their hearts in rebellion, and they've claimed now that Jesus has performed this miracle not by his own power or the power of God, but by the power of Satan. They can't deny the miracle, so they're going to deny and twist where the miracle came from. And Jesus responds to this claim. First, he destroys their completely illogical supposition. And he claims this, he has a longer argument, but the the summation of it is, how can Satan cast out Satan? How would I be able to cast out demons by the power of Satan? That doesn't even make any sense. A house divided against itself can't stand. It makes zero sense at all. And then he presses even further to confront them on their utter blasphemy. Their blasphemy. Because they claim that God's work, the holy and true God, his work, was being done through the usage of the power of Satan. He tells them that by such a horrendous blasphemy, they will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. But instead, they would be judged by these very words. He says, by these very words, you will be condemned. Now at this point, they don't really know what to do. And so they regroup And they make one more attempt to ruin Jesus in the eyes of the people. And so that's where we pick up today. We're we're continuing along in the narrative, and yet we're landing here, I believe, for a reason. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it. But the sign of Jonah the prophet, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, at this point, again, Jesus is teaching in the public square and he's he's doing this for all people to see. So all these people are, are witnessing, they're hearing from him, they're seeing the miracles. And every single time he receives opposition... It's an attempt by the Pharisees and the religious leaders to to really discredit him and shame him in the eyes of the people. If we can humiliate him enough in front of all the crowds, they'll turn on him and they'll do our work for us. And then it'll come to nothing. But the problem is it's not working. 
It's not working. In fact, it's the Pharisees that are being discredited publicly. But in verse 38, they try to hatch a new tactic. And Matthew tells us, it's very interesting, they now join forces with the scribes. Now, in a parallel account, in Mark's gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, the Pharisees had already joined forces with a group called the Herodians, but to no avail. Now they're joining with the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? Well, back up just a little bit here, keeping in mind that like most societies, Israel had various different groups of leaders. The Pharisees, on one hand, were really the religious conservatives, and they were prone to be legalistic, if you will. They really kept people to the letter of the law, and they wanted to make sure they were the law police that you didn't violate any of those laws. Now, their political opponent were the the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were more of the theological liberals of the day, they would very, they'd be very loose and fast with the interpretation of Scripture, but they were still insistent on obedience. And then there were the scribes. The scribes. The scribes were the Jewish theologians of the day. They were experts in biblical law. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, they were kind of jostling for position and things like that, but really they would always default to the, the scribes, the, the law students, to know what was going on. And here's the thing. If Jesus were going to make a theological misstep, surely, surely the scribes were going to catch it. However, they don't approach Jesus now with guns blazing. They've already tried that. It's not working. So they try a little bit more stealthy approach. And at least, at least time, this time, they're, they at least appear to be respectful. And so they come to Jesus and they say to him, they call him teacher. Now that really could be a Jewish uh, title of rabbi. They would call him rabbi. But they say teacher and they're going to ask him for something that surely is going to put an end to all of this. One way or another, we're going to land at this point. And they say this in verse 38. Teacher, oh dear teacher, rabbi, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, what exactly are they asking for? What are they asking for? In the Bible, we see various examples of miraculous works known as signs. Now, they're called signs because they're pointing to a greater spiritual reality. And I've said this before, a sign is always for a sign. It seems like a very redundant, silly thing to say, but many, many times, even in our culture, when people say they're performing signs, they're signs to nowhere. They don't mean anything. A sign in the Bible always points to some greater spiritual reality every single time. For example, God gives Abraham a great vision. He gives him a miraculous, wondrous vision in Genesis chapter 15. But it's a sign that God is going to keep his specific promises to him. And the promise comes to fruition. For example, again, Gideon receives a sign from God, a much more tangible sign in the form of a a wool fleece. You can read that account in Judges. But the sign was pointing to the reality that Gideon would be victorious in battle. There was something that's going to happen uh, from that sign. Again, unique, unique works of God confirmed either a message or an action. Signs always pointed to something that was going to happen. And I would add here that many preachers today, again, claim signs and wonders. And I would just pose the question when anybody would say, I'm going to perform a sign or a wonder or a miracle or a work for you. What is this supposed to be pointing to? And generally speaking, it's not their message because the messages that we hear from that movement is normally heretical. If you can't get the gospel right, I guarantee you you're not coming with God's power. 
And it's not the power itself because the vast majority of their supposed miracles are fraudulent. So a sign is always meant to point to a truthful, divine reality. Every single time. And so the Pharisees, that's what they're asking for. We want something that's verifiable. No more dog and pony show. No more miraculous works, even though what they're seeing is remarkable. They don't want that anymore. We don't want to see that. We want something that's going to be a lot more specific. We want to see something more amazing, more significant, more miraculous than what you've already done. Something to verify in the eyes of the scribes and the eyes of the people that Jesus really is who he says he is. Despite the plethora of miracles that they've seen so far, they've seen so many things, things that are undeniable, and yet they have the audacity to say, teacher, oh good teacher, would you just please show us a sign? But the Jews, they already had seen this sign hundreds of times over. In fact, in fact, one of the Pharisees, one of their own, a man named Nicodemus, way back in John chapter 3, verse 2, says to Jesus himself, admits this to him, Rabbi, we know, and he's talking about we, meaning the Pharisees, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God was with him. They knew, they already knew this. They already admitted this to him. They already had everything they needed, but they wanted more because what they saw for them was not enough. It's not enough, God. We want more. What they're saying essentially is, teacher, we want you to light up the sky and dry up the seas. Do all the miracles that you did for Moses. And then, then we'll believe. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 39. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. One of the greatest problems for Israel was that of spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. All throughout their history, till you read the Bible, you see over and over and over and over again, they would engage in what we call the sin cycle. The sin cycle. They would apostatize and walk away from God and abandon God and follow after other idols and commit spiritual adultery. And then they would get into trouble. They would get into captivity or a plague would break out or something really bad would happen to them. And then they would pray, Oh Lord, if you would just deliver us, we'll come back to you. And they would cry out to God and plead with Him. He would restore them and redeem them and, and bring them back. And they would do well for a while, and they would fall back into sin and repeat the same pattern over and over and over again. And isn't that the most human thing to do? We go through these cycles over and over again. As soon as you get in hot water, as soon as something bad happens, Oh, Lord, if you would just deliver me from this trial, I'll do whatever you say. I'll go to church. I'll give money. I'll believe in you. I'll read my Bible. I'll be nice to people. All this other stuff. And as soon as you're out of hot water... You go right back, don't you? It's, it's the plight of humanity over and over again. But Israel, generation after generation, over and over and over again. But now this generation, this present generation here in the text, they have the opportunity to encounter the living God, the Lord himself, face to face. Something that Moses could only have ever dreamed of. And now he's here. And he's teaching, and he's ministering, and he's healing, and he's performing miraculous works. 
And yet they still don't believe in him. He's staring them in the face, reciting his very word to them, performing signs and wonders, and they've hardened their hearts in rebellion. And see, here's the thing. If any generation should have embraced the Lord, it should have been this one. But John 1 says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own people, his own flesh and blood. Jesus himself, and in terms of a lineage, read Matthew chapter 1, his lineage. He's a Jew from the tribe of, of Judah. I mean, he's, he's there. He's with them. He's their people. He's their own flesh and blood, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He came to his own. They wouldn't have him. In their hardness of heart, it's not good enough for them. They want another sign. Another sign. And in response to this stubborn hardness of heart, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation craves after a sign. And yet, no sign will be given. He's not engaging in any more of their foolishness. He's not playing games. He is not their court gesture, turning tricks and dancing to their tune at the snap of their fingers. He's not doing that. Jesus never does that. No, I'm not giving you any more signs. It wouldn't do any good anyway. In fact, that's Paul's issue with the Jews later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. He says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs. That's their M.O. Jews ask for signs. And then he says, and Greeks search for wisdom. So you have this twofold problem here. The Jews, the people of God here, ethnically, they want just miraculous signs. And the Gentiles, they're all about the wisdom. Give us a new idea. Give us some new philosophy. Wow us with your intellect. What's Paul say? What's Paul's big answer? Because Paul could do both. He had the power to do both. Well, he gives the same answer that Jesus is about to give. Paul's answer to that is we preach Christ crucified. That's our MO. That's our MO is to preach Christ. Watch this. Jesus says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, what exactly is the sign of Jonah? What is this? Scholars have had some discussion about what this is, but I think the text is pretty clear. And to get some help, we pull in a couple scholars here and there. One scholar named Leon Morris actually makes note of this, that the grammar in the original Greek, in the original text, the grammar itself tells us it's not the sign that belongs to Jonah. So it's not his message, it's not his ministry. Rather, in the Greek Textually, it reflects more like this. The sign that is Jonah. The sign of Jonah himself. So Jonah is the sign. In what way? Look at verse 40. Jesus says this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the first part of this verse really is a direct quote from the prophecy of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. It refers to Jonah's ordeal, and 
Most of you, if you've gone to Sunday school, you've heard the story or you've seen movies about this or whatever it may be. But just to refresh your memory, God calls a prophet named Jonah to go to uh, the Ninevites from Israel. He's supposed to go to this pagan and godless city to deliver God's message. But Jonah doesn't want to do that. It's like being asked to go to some pagan city you just don't want to go to. But God tells him to go. But Jonah, instead, in disobedience, he flees and he goes in the opposite direction. He runs as far away as he possibly can, rejecting and rebelling against the command of God. And while he's escaping on this ship for the city of Tarshish, God causes a great storm to besiege the boat. And then Jonah knows, however, that it's all about him. He knows that the reason that they're about to capsize is because he's on that boat. So he tells the crew, well, you know what, it's, this isn't your fault, guys. This is my fault. Throw me overboard and the storm will cease. And so they do. They throw him overboard. And when they throw him overboard, he begins to drown. And as he's going down, Jonah 1.17 reads, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. At that time, we read in chapter 2 of Jonah's prophecy, he, he utters this prayer of lament and repentance. Jonah cries out to God. This is Jonah. I called out of my distress to the Lord. And he answered me, I cried for help in the depths of Sheol, of hell. And you heard my voice. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. And while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Now we don't know if while he's in the belly of this We presume it's a whale or something like that while he's in there. We don't know if he is kept alive by some miracle for three days, or we don't know if he actually died and was resurrected three days later. What we do know is that after three days and three nights, chapter 2, verse 10 of Jonah's prophecy, at the command of God, the fish spit him up on dry land. Now, many have objected that this story is merely a myth. That's just child's play. A whale or a fish would never swallow a man. Well, it just goes to show you, last year, the Cape Cod Times reported a 56-year-old lobster diver named Michael Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. Once inside, he reports, the whale jerked and shook its head, realizing that both of them weren't happy. And after 30 or 40 seconds, Packard was then spit back out. And as he came up from to the surface, a, a nearby fishing boat saw him pop back up and he was in distress. They rushed to pick him up. They brought him to the hospital and he made a full recovery and went on the nightly news to talk about it. So we know that it's at least physically possible. We know that there are some whales out there that just think this is a good idea. <laughs> but the real question is, okay, we know it can happen, but the question is, well, for three days, though, Three days inside the belly? Obviously, this only happened according to divine divine providence and the power of God. As to the historicity, the historical reliability of this event, in terms of the man Jonah himself, 2 Kings 14.25 names Jonah, the son of Amittai, as a real person. So the Bible recognizes in and of itself that this is not just some fairy tale. This is a real person who really lived according to the Bible itself. And even in history, there's a place in in Mosul, Iraq, named Nebuunis. Nebuunis, which has been long regarded as the tomb of the prophet Jonah. They have a place 
where not only they realized he came up, up, up to shore, but when he died, they buried him there. His tomb was there until the insurgents blew it up a couple years ago, but that's a historical place. And so by all biblical and historical records, Jonah was a real person. So therefore, if he's a real person, we have to ask this question. Did he lie about being swallowed by a fish? Well, Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Verse 40 again. Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He likens Jonah's personal death, descent into the abyss, and resurrection to his own impending death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus uses this as, a, as an analogy, as a picture. And you say, well, yeah, but it could be metaphorical. Well, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was not metaphorical. So Jesus is using a real, miraculous account to describe and point to a real, miraculous account. Whereas Jonah was kept in the belly of the whale, Jesus will be kept in the heart of the earth, in the tomb. Jesus is foretelling the events that will soon take place on the cross, when he dies and pays for sin, when he's buried in the ground in the tomb, and then his resurrection to new life. He's foretelling with this story, that's the sign. That's what I'll give you. Now, some have made us think about the fact that Jesus wasn't actually in the tomb for three days and three nights. In fact, when you do the math from Good Friday, so they they count that time about probably after 6 p.m., so Good Friday evening through Saturday into Sunday morning, it's at very best probably 36 hours. So not a full three days, 24-hour period, 72 hours. But here's the thing with that. That in in Jewish literature, they weren't always as precise as we might be in speaking of certain events. According to the Talmud, so some of the Jewish teaching, according to the Talmud, any part of a day is considered as the whole. So in the way that they would speak about it, any part of Friday, any part of Saturday, any part of Sunday, they could very easily say three days. It didn't bother them. They weren't being as specific. And after all, Jesus' point isn't how he's planning on enacting exactly the, the story of Jonah's descent. That's not the point. The point for him is to point to the reality that he is going to die, be buried, and resurrect miraculously as a sign. That's the point. That's the reason for the sign of Jonah. And he says, in fact, this would be the final sign that Jesus would perform as the Christ. And in the end, my friends, it's the only sign that matters. Everything else in comparison is divine fireworks when you consider the cross and the resurrection. And what would you do then with a crucified and resurrected Messiah? Either you embrace his saving act of redemption or you reject it in stubborn disobedience. Those are your two options. Being neutral isn't anything. Being neutral means you reject. But Jesus knew that the Pharisees would reject him, which is why he states in verse 41, he says, the men of Nineveh. What's Nineveh? Well, that's the place that Jonah went, right? 
The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's shifting now from the sign of Jonah, the actual picture that Jonah paints, now to the ministry of Jonah. He's moved in his analogy just a bit. The ministry of Jonah, because at the end of the book of Jonah, he does eventually get to Nineveh. He's grumpy when he gets there, but he goes. He does go. And when he gets to Nineveh, he preaches God's message, and the Ninevites repent. The whole city comes out in repentance, and they all believe in God. And God saves an entire city of people. Hundreds of thousands of people all turn to believe the message from God. And Jesus notes that those repentant and redeemed Ninevites who are now in heaven will stand up at the judgment at the end of the age and they will condemn this generation. They're looking on. They will condemn you as well. Why? Why will they be condemned by these pagan Ninevites? Because Israel should have known better and yet they still rejected the Lord. After all, what did Nineveh have? Were they in a better spot than Israel? Hardly. What did Nineveh have? They had the message from a minor prophet. They had a message of judgment. No grace, no mercy, just judgment. No miracles to authenticate it. No inherent favor with God, showing partiality. They didn't didn't know God, particularly. And yet, they still heard the message and repented and trusted in Him. What did Israel have? Israel didn't just have a prophet. Israel had the Son of God Himself. They had the Son of God bringing a message not of judgment, but of grace and forgiveness. You can have reconciliation with God through me. You can have access to God. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have a ransom paid for you. If you'd believe. They had a message of grace and forgiveness. They had authenticated messages through miracles, countless miracles. They had the fireworks. And even if they didn't have all that, this was brought to a people who knew the true and living God. The Israelites, they knew knew God. And they were supposed to be waiting for Him. And so pagan, sinful Nineveh, they repented. But Israel, they would not. Shameful. Shameful. That's why Jesus says, they will judge you. They will judge you. Why? Because something greater than Jonah is here. Greater than Jonah. Greater than anybody. Read Hebrews. Greater than any and all persons to come before him. Christ is exalted. He is preeminent. Greater than Jonah. But he doesn't stop there. He gives another illustration in verse 42. He says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This comes from an event recorded in 1 Kings 10.1 where the queen of Sheba travels 1,200 miles on a camel. 1,200 miles to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Again, the same logic as before. If a pagan Arabian queen is willing to travel 1,200 miles just to listen to the words of a sinful Israelite king, 
then how much more eager should Israel be to listen to the words of their own king who came to them and sought them out? They don't have to travel anywhere. Remember John 1.12, he came to his own. He came for them and lived there and ate with them and walked with them and talked with them. He came right to their door. Even his disciples, his followers, they didn't see, hear, hear a news bulletin about Jesus the Messiah and went and found him. He went to their house and said, hey, you, drop your nets. You follow me. How much more personal can you get? This should have been a no-brainer for them. And yet they rejected him. Which is why he tells them, the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, they will stand against Israel at the judgment because they heeded the message while Israel sinfully rejected. What about us? Where do we fit into all this? Because obviously we're not living in Israel in the first century. We don't have the luxury and the benefit of seeing the sign of Jonah in front of us. We don't live there. But I'll tell you this, the sign of Jonah applies to us. It absolutely applies to us. Because it's not only by the death and burial and resurrection that Jesus Christ has done this, but it is by the Spirit working in us that brings all this to bear on our hearts. In fact, it is only by that death, burial, and resurrection that any of us has any hope of salvation and eternal life. That's it. You're not going to get divine fireworks from God. Now, God will sometimes use things in your life to get your attention. There's no doubt. I've known lots of people, even the last couple years. They've been shaken to their core, and they say, I I need to figure this out. Where's God? God. And they seek for him and they find him. So God will use means, but don't guarantee, don't promise yourself that's got to be the way. If you hear his voice in your heart at all, don't turn away. Don't harden your heart and become stubborn. Don't reject. Don't, Don't give yourself excuses. I read something this week from a pastor. Deathbed conversions do happen. They do happen. But that is an awful, awful plan A. Let that be the last way you come to Christ. And I've even heard people say, well, maybe, maybe later on in my life. When is your, and when's your life going to end? Do you know? Well, it's going to be when I'm like 90, 95. Are you sure about that? Ever read the newspaper, read the obituaries? There's always someone, you know, 85, 90. Then you see 65. Then you see 40. Then every now and then you see 18. You don't know. You don't know. Every single day, someone gets into a car crash. Every single day, someone has a heart attack. Every single day, someone has a stroke or a seizure. Every single day, you just don't know. You're pumping your car full of gas and some crazed person runs into the, to the mart and starts shooting it up. You don't know. Friends, you don't know when your time is going to come to an end. Why would you wait? Why would you hold out for some sign that might never come when the sign is already here? You hear the message. You've already heard it multiple times today that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and lived a perfect life, a life that we're supposed to live. 
He lived a perfect life and then gave that life away and died on the cross. Why? Because he felt like being some random martyr? No, he died as a ransom to pay a penalty for your sins and my sins. And he paid the penalty for all that sin, past, present, future. That all the totality of your debt to God, your sin debt to God, is canceled out and paid for by his blood sacrifice on the cross. It's an atonement. You don't atone for your own sins. I don't care what church, what person, what minister tells you, it's not true. You cannot atone for your own sins. Only Christ can. And he gave that life on the cross and paid that debt and then died and proved to the world and to the Father that that sin and that debt and that punishment is gone. It's dead. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He will not hold a single sin against you at the judgment if your faith is in Jesus. If his righteousness is your righteousness, granted to you by faith. He goes into the ground, is in there for three days, as we said. And the third day, he rises. The tomb opens up and he bursts forth from the grave, conquering death and proving to all mankind, heaven and earth, that He is the resurrected, living Son of God. No one like Him. No one like Him. Greater than Solomon. Greater than Jonah. Greater than Abraham. Greater than Moses. Greater than all. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the sign. That is the sign. That Jesus came and gave His life for you. Do you believe that? Do you accept that? Do you turn from your sins? Do you acknowledge before God, I am a sinner. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. Have mercy on me. That's called repentance. And then faith, a trusting in God that my life is not my own, that the only way I get to heaven is if you take me. And we know that on the cross, the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect, was credited to the sinner, you and me. And the sinfulness of the sinner is credited to an undeserving Savior who put that to death. It's called the great exchange, if you will, where Christ made a full payment and granted forgiveness by God and reconciliation. Now you can know God. You can know the Father. You can know the Son. You can know the Spirit because of what Christ has done. And not just saved you and got you into heaven but also has given you new life. Now your life changes. Your mind changes. Your heart changes. Your emotions. Your your will. What you do. How you speak. How you think. Everything changes because you have peace with God. A new heart. A renewed mind. A cleansed mind. You're not the same as you used to be. And you also have a future hope in heaven that now my end address has changed. It used to be hell, but now it's in heaven with God in full joy and in full rest. Friends, do you know Him? Do you know Him? If you don't, turn from your sins right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Turn from your sins. Confess Him. Trust Him as Lord and Savior, your only Savior, and believe. And the Bible says you will have eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, O God, You are our righteousness. And God, if it was up to us, all of us would fail the test. None of us are righteous. Not even one, the Bible says. No, nobody understands. Nobody seeks after God. On our own, we turn away. And yet you, you extended love and mercy to your enemies. You gave up your only precious son as an offering, as a substitute, as a payment for sins. Because of your love, your great love with which you loved us, gave us Christ that we might turn and repent and trust in him and have eternal life. Lord, we celebrate, we celebrate that you, Jesus, did not go and stay in the ground. They will never find your body on earth. You are risen. Even now, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints on behalf of the will of God, you are ours. And we, those who have put their trust in you, we are your church, we are your bride, your beloved, the ones whom you have redeemed from the pit. And so we thank you, we praise you that you've extended such grace and such mercy. And I I beg you, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know, they don't know where they're going to go when they die, I pray that you would get a hold of their heart. Do not let them go. Attack their heart. Attack their mind. Give them sleepless nights until they turn to you. No one else can force them, Lord. They must see their need for the Savior. And I pray that in mercy and in kindness and in grace, you would grant that to them. Restore them. Forgive them. Thank you for an amazing day of celebration that our Christ is risen. We thank you and praise you. In his name, amen.